Welcome to Read By, where today's finest authors read what matters to them, from their homes to yours. In this episode, Jenny Shia reads Adrian Rich's essay, Legislators of the World. To learn more from Shia about her choice, check out the episode description. And now, Read By, Jenny Shia. Hello, this is Jenny Shia, and I'll be reading an essay by Adrian Rich titled Legislators of the World. The essay itself is adapted from a plenary lecture Rich gave at the 2006 Conference on Poetry and Politics in Scotland. Rich's words are ones I've revisited during this time of intersecting and unfurling crises to help me think through the efficacy of the arts, particularly poetry to respond to the clamor, the turmoil, to the extraordinary pressures of this moment. What civic responsibility do artists and writers bear? And what does it mean to write and read poetry or make art that attempts to make sense of what's at stake in our time? The moral clarity of Rich's rhetoric is bracing. Her words offer a resolute commitment and a summons along with necessary reminder of what revolutionary power lies in hearing differently, in speaking differently, in imagining differently, in the hard labor of committed attention. Legislators of the World In the Defense of Poetry, 1821, Shelley claimed that, quote, poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. This has been taken to suggest that simply by virtue of composing verse, they exert some exemplary moral power in a vague, unthreatening way. In fact, in his earlier political essay, A Philosophic View of Reform, he had written that poets and philosophers are the unacknowledged, etc. The philosophers he was talking about were revolutionary-minded. Thomas Paine, William Godwin, Voltaire, and Mary Wollstonecraft. In addition, Shelley was, no mistake, out to change the legislation of his time. For him, there was no contradiction between poetry, political philosophy, and active confrontation with illegitimate authority. For him, art bore an integral relationship to the, quote, struggle between revolution and oppression. His West Wind was the, quote, trumpet of a prophecy, driving dead thoughts, like withered leaves, to quicken a new birth. I am both a poet and one of the everybodies of my country. I live with manipulated fear, ignorance, cultural confusion, and social antagonism huddling together on the fault line of an empire. I hope never to idealize poetry. It has suffered enough from that. Poetry is not a healing lotion an emotional massage, a kind of linguistic aromatherapy. Neither is it a blueprint, nor an instruction manual, or a billboard. There is no universal poetry anyway, only poetries and poetics and the streaming intertwining histories to which they belong. There is room, indeed necessity, for both Neruda and César Vallejo, for Pier Paolo Pasolini and Alfalsina Storni, and for Ezra Pound and Nellie Sachs. 
poetries are no more pure and simple, unlike human histories. They are colonized and resilient poetics, and hence transmissions across frontiers not easily traced. Walt Whitman never separated his poetry from his vision of American democracy. Late in life, he called, quote, poetic lore, a conversation overheard in the dusk from speakers far or hid, of which we get only a few broken murmurs, end quote. The obscurity we might think now of democracy itself, but also of those dark times in and about which Bertolt Brecht assured us there would be songs. Poetry has been charged with aestheticizing, thus being complicit in the violent realities of power of practices such as collective punishment, torture, rape, and genocide. This accusation was famously invoked in Adorno's, quote, after the Holocaust lyric poetry is impossible, end quote which he later retracted and which a succession of Jewish poets have in their practice rejected. However, if poetry had gone mute after every genocide in history, there would be no poetry left in the world. If to aestheticize is to glide across brutality and cruelty, treat them merely as dramatic occasions for the artist rather than structures of power to be described and dismantled, much hangs on that word merely. Opportunism is not the same as committed attention, but we can also define the word aesthetic not as privileged and sequestered rendering of human suffering, but as news of an awareness, a resistance, which totalizing systems want to quell, art reaching into us for what is still passionate, still unintimidated, and still unquenched. Poetry has been written off on other counts. It is not a mass market product does not get sold in airport newsstands or in supermarket aisles. It is too difficult for the average mind. It is too elite. But the wealthy do not bid for it as Sotheby's. It is, in short, redundant. This might be called the free market critique of poetry. There's actually an odd correlation between these ideas. Poetry is either inadequate, even immoral in the face of human suffering, or it is unprofitable, hence useless. Either way, poets are advised to hang our heads or fold our tents. Yet, in fact, throughout the world, transfusions of poetic language can and do quite literally keep bodies and souls together, and more. Critical discourse about poetry has said little about the daily conditions of our material existence, past and present how they imprint the life of the feelings and of involuntary human responses, how we glimpse a blur of the smoke in the air, look at a pair of shoes in a shop window or a group of men on a street corner, how we hear rain on the roof or music on the radio upstairs, how we meet or avoid eyes of a neighbor or a stranger. That pressure bends our angle of vision, whether we recognize it or not. Many well-wrought banal poems, like a great many essays on poetry and poetics, are written as if such pressures did not exist. But this only reveals their existence. But when poetry lays its hand on our shoulder, we are, to an almost physical degree, touched and moved. 
the imagination's roads open before us, giving the lie to that brute dictum, there is no alternative. Of course, like the consciousness behind it, behind any art, a poem can be deep or shallow, glib or visionary, prescient or stuck in an already lagging trendiness. What is pushing the grammar and syntax, the sounds, the images, is it the constriction of literalism, fundamentalism, and professionalism, a stunted language? Or is it the great muscle of metaphor, drawing strength from resemblance and difference? Poetry has a capacity to remind us of something we are forbidden to see, a forgotten future, a still uncreated site whose moral architecture is founded not on ownership and dispossession, the subjection of women, outcast, and tribe, but on the continuous redefining of freedom, that word now held under house arrest by the rhetoric of the free market. This ongoing future, written off over and over, is still within view. All over the world, its paths are being rediscovered and reinvented. There's always that in poetry which will not be grasped, which cannot be described, which survives our ardent attention, our critical theories, and our late-night arguments. There is always, I'm quoting the poet-translator Americo Ferrari, quote, an unspeakable where, perhaps, the nucleus of the living relation between the poem and the world resides. Nine Two Y is read by is produced and commissioned by New York's Nine Two Y Unterberg Poetry Center, a home for live readings and literature for over eighty years. To invite more authors into your home, subscribe to Nine Two Y is read by wherever you download podcasts. If you're able, please visit nine two y dot org slash help now to donate to support Nine Two Y and our new digital programming. Thank you, and thank you for listening. Find more great recordings at 92y.org slash redby.